You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Uh, well, we are today continuing our summer in the Psalms, and Psalm 39 is where we are today. Uh, if you have one of those black hardcover Bibles, page 467 and then into 468 is where you will find today's text. And Psalm 39 is what I'm calling a song of the suffering, song of the suffering. Uh, we, we never actually do find out the specific circumstances that David, who wrote this psalm, that David was experiencing as he was writing this. Uh, but evidently, it was something prolonged, and it was something, as you'll hear, that caused him to wrestle really deeply with hard questions about God. One of the incredible things about the Psalms is that they give our souls a voice. They give our souls a voice, and they really validate the whole range of what it means to be human, human experience. Not only joy and delight and celebration, as we've seen in some of the Psalms already this summer, but also despair and sorrow and hopelessness. Throughout the centuries, people of God have been comforted by the Psalms. And that's because they, they resonate. They give words to express our real lives and the things we experience in our very real lives. But Psalm 39 actually stands out a little bit. There, there are in this book of Psalms, there are actually a number of what we would call Psalms of Lament. Psalms of Lament. And they tend to follow a fairly particular pattern. They start with a cry to God, and then there's a complaint about the circumstances that the psalmist is experiencing. Somewhere in the middle, there's a turn, and an expression of faith and trust in God. And then they usually end with, a, with gratitude for deliverance, with praise to God for the way he has brought them through. Here's the thing about Psalm 39. There's no deliverance. There's no praise at the end of the psalm. It doesn't end on a happy note. It actually ends with David telling God to look away from him. So if, if you're a Christian who likes simplistic answers or formulas, uh, who thinks that, that Jesus makes your life easy, or that faith in God leads to this happy, kind of carefree life, you're going to be really frustrated with Psalm 39. You're going to, as some authors and even some commentators, uh, some scholars try to do, you're going to try to find a way to explain away the despair and the hopelessness that David feels in this psalm and that he ends this psalm with. But if you're a Christian who has suffered, if you're a Christian who is suffering, if you're a Christian who wrestles deeply with the goodness of God, then chances are you're going to find this psalm strangely encouraging. That you're going to be oddly comforted by a psalm that doesn't end on a happy note. Because it immediately says, and I hope it says this to you today, that you are not the only one. That you are not the first worshiper of God who is unable in a moment of your life to tie a nice, neat, happy bow on things. See, it's incredible to look back on suffering that's been in the past for us, suffering we've gone through, and to, to rejoice in how God has brought us through. But what about when we're in the midst of it? What about when we're still in the midst of suffering? We need words for the suffering itself. We need a place to go with our suffering. 
And if God is really God, if he is the one who is over all and through all and in all, then we need to be able to take our unresolved suffering to him. Not somewhere else, because really, where else would we go? And that's really why I love that Psalm 39 is in the Bible. And that this is just as much scripture, just as much the word of God as all of the happy, joyful psalms. And that the word of God is not formulaic, happy, clappy, self-help fluff. But that these, as you'll hear in just a moment, are real words penned by a real man who's living a real life before the face of the real God. So this morning, may these words instruct us and form us uh, and transform us in the midst of our own real lives, in the midst of our own suffering. And I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Psalm 39. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. God, our helper, we ask now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open our minds that you would lead us into your truth. And we pray this for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, uh, who is our savior and our God. Amen. Our response to suffering, uh, and especially to prolonged suffering, involves both silence and speaking. And so this song of the suffering, as I'm calling it, includes both of those things. There are two kinds of silence, And then there are two kinds of spoken struggles. And we'll spend our time this morning really looking at at those things. So first, two kinds of silence. Two kinds of silence. The first kind is what I'm going to call guarded silence. Guarded silence. David begins this psalm, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. And then he says, I was mute and silent. When, When we're suffering it's immensely helpful and really important to talk about it. It helps us to process things. 
It helps other people. It invites them in to carry something of the, the burden and the weight with us. Some people, depending on their, your, your personality, kind of your approach to life, tend to, tend to bottle all of that up, which just compounds the, the suffering and the pain that we're experiencing. David, however, is not that guy. He's not that guy. If we know anything about David, he is a very emotional, very expressive man. So his tendency, his natural tendency is not to bottle it up. It's to get it all out. I mean, he's a musician after all. He's a songwriter. So he wants to talk about it. Even though we don't know what the specific suffering is, he wants to talk about it. The the danger for David then is that he will indiscriminately vent his suffering to anyone who's willing to listen. And so he begins this psalm with really a reminder to himself and talking about the pursuit he was going through himself with a a reminder to put his hand over his mouth. To be wise not only about what he says, but who he says it around. When we talk honestly about our suffering, people will misunderstand. And some of you know that really well in, in what you've tried to share and tried to invite people into your suffering. Some people try to use our suffering against us. And so, as David says here, I need to guard my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. He's about to get really honest about his deep struggles with God. But as the king, as the leader over the people of God, if any of his enemies or if any of his political opponents hear him do that, they're more than likely to use it against him. It would be a little bit like if as a pastor I were to get up here some week and just start things off by saying, I hate God today. I hate God today. Or I, you know what? I don't really believe in the goodness of God right now. I can't see it. I don't believe it. Some people, maybe you, maybe not you, who knows? Some people would say, what, what is that guy doing as a pastor? Like, get, get him out of there. Get somebody else there who doesn't say stuff like that. Now, for David, some would not perhaps have wicked intent, but they just wouldn't understand They just wouldn't understand. Let's be honest. Many of us have no idea what to do with someone who is suffering in a prolonged way. And that's especially true if they don't end every update of theirs with some kind of phrase like, but God is good, or, but I'm still doing better than I deserve, or some other kind of tag-on Christian cliche. If we don't hear that from them, do you not find yourself wanting to put it in there for them sometimes? And we mean well, we're we're trying to inject some hope into what seems and feels so hopeless, but it makes us people who are impossible to share honestly with when we do that. It, It makes the sufferer feel like they'd better hurry up and get happy again because we're just so uncomfortable with the fact that they're not right now. So some people use suffering against us. Some people don't understand. Others, perhaps those of newfound faith, or those who are also in a, in a place of real deep pain and real deep suffering and despair in their own life, they might be harmed by our own raw venting about suffering. They might not be rooted enough to handle that and just hear it indiscriminately from us in any given moment. All of these reasons make guarded silence important. We need to be wise and discerning about who we're going to speak honestly with. So if, if your instinct is not to bottle it up, if your instinct is to blurt it out and to speak your suffering to anyone who is willing to listen, learn from David, learn from this psalm to put your hand over your mouth. Now at the same time, you need to take your suffering somewhere. 
like David, as he says here, it's no use to hold your peace, especially as the distress grows worse, especially as the fire burns within you. You're going to need to speak. You're going to need to vent to someone. So what a gift real friends are. Yeah? What a, real, what a gift real friends are. People who can actually handle our suffering and can handle our venting who don't misunderstand us, who don't try to use it against us, and who are rooted enough to not be wrecked by us just saying whatever it is we're actually experiencing and feeling in that moment. If you have people like that in your life, let Psalm 39 remind you of the real gift from God that they are. And even take an opportunity the next couple days to, to share that with them. Let's also seek to become those kinds of friends to each other and to other people, people that sufferers can talk with, people who can help carry some of that burden. But actually, community and friendship is not where David goes with Psalm 39. His point in talking about this guarded silence is that actually the best place to go, the best place to take our suffering, to take our venting, is to God himself. We're going to circle back in just a minute to consider what David says, his spoken struggles. But before we do, let's look at the other kind of silence that we see here in Psalm 39. Not just a guarded silence, but what I'm going to call a submissive silence. Submissive silence. Look again there at verse 9. It's the second time that David says, I am mute. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. What's he say next? For it is you who have done it. Who's behind David's suffering? God is. God is the one behind David's suffering. Now, we could spend hours this morning trying to parse out the difference between God causing suffering and God permitting or God allowing suffering. That's a huge topic for another day. The point this morning in Psalm 39 is this, is that if God is the creator and sustainer, and if he is really sovereign, if he is completely in control of everything, then God is behind suffering, either by causing it or by not intervening when it's happening for some other reason. God is behind our suffering. And that will lead us at times to submissive silence, to these speechless moments where we recognize quite simply, he is God and I am not. And rather than continuing my protest or continuing to argue my circumstances with him, the, actual, the only response left to me is to, to yield, to tap out, to submit to who God is, to the power of God. Now, I'm not saying that that's always going to be encouraging or that that's going to be satisfying when you have these moments of submissive silence. And I'm also not saying that you should just hurry up and skip over the, the pleading and the venting to God. What I'm saying is that the well-worn path for the people of God leads to these kinds of moments of silent submission where there is nothing left for us to say and the only thing that is left for us is to sit silently in the reality of a God whose purposes always prevail. This is actually where Job's path led. If you're familiar with Job and his story in the Bible, he's the epitome of suffering in scripture. And he complained and he pleaded with God for more than 30 chapters. And then in chapter 40, he shut his mouth. And it says there in Job, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And likewise, the author of Ecclesiastes goes on to write, For God is in heaven and you are on earth. 
Therefore, let your words be few. Let your words be few. As one who suffers, don't skip over the, the important process of actually pleading with God, complaining to God, venting to God, especially if your suffering is perpetual or prolonged. You won't be able to skip over that. You'll have to do that. So vent and plead and complain to him. Just don't be surprised if at times that leads to the same place that it led Job and the same place it's leading David in Psalm 39 to these moments of silent submission. You are God, I am not. I'm gonna be quiet because really at the end of the day, the last word belongs to you. Those are the two kinds of silence that we see in Psalm 39. But David also speaks He also speaks. Two spoken struggles that flow directly out of prolonged suffering. We'll consider those next. The the two struggles are these. The purpose of suffering. What's the point of it all? And then God's attentiveness to our suffering. Where is God in the midst of our suffering? So first, the purpose of suffering. And, And David is saying throughout this psalm, in essence, if life is so short, and it is, What's the point of suffering? What's the point of it? Verses four through six, as you heard, are all about the brevity of life, how fleeting we are, that our days are only a few hand breaths, our lifetime is nothing, that we are merely a breath, that we are merely a shadow. There, there are some parts of the Bible where the brevity of life is really motivating. Think of like James 4 or Psalm 90 where the psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. And it's saying there, life is short, use it well. It's motivating us to use the short life we have for good things. Psalm 39 though is a lot more like the book of Ecclesiastes. These other parts of the Bible that are like those old motivational posters, the successories. Ecclesiastes is the demotivational posters. They're the cynical ones that are like the opposite of that. And in fact, three times in this psalm, the word for breath, the word for nothing in Psalm 39, it's the same word that's translated vanity or meaningless in the book of Ecclesiastes. David in Psalm 39 is agreeing with the author of Ecclesiastes, life is too short to spend it all suffering. Now, if suffering is temporary, if we know there's an end in sight, we can usually endure that. We can usually see something of the purpose of that. God's people have always recognized that suffering is sanctifying. In other words, it is part of God's ongoing work of shaping us, of making us holy, of exposing parts of our lives that we need to grow in. And there are plenty of passages in the Bible that talk about the immense purpose that God has in our suffering. Romans 5, for example, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces what? Hope, that's purpose. There's purpose to the suffering. Furthermore, some of our suffering is the direct result of our own sin. Some of our suffering is our own fault. And David actually gets really honest. He speaks about that in this psalm. In verse eight, he asks God to deliver him from his transgressions, from his own sin, from the things that he's contributed to his suffering. In verse 11, he speaks about God's discipline and God's rebukes for sin. So David wants to know what of his suffering is he actually responsible for? What does he need to own? What does he need to repent to God for that that's actually his own sin has led to his his suffering? And the purpose of that kind of suffering is a lot clearer, is it not? 
if we're going against the grain of God's world, of God's good design, then our suffering is meant to wake us up and to show us the real danger, the real folly of, of going our own way. But what about the suffering that you're not responsible for? Some suffering is just part of the brokenness of the world. It's still the result of what we might call capital S sin, the fall, humanity's rebellion against God and how that fractured and corrupted the world. But it's not your direct fault. It's not your own personal responsibility. And God help us if we only have one category for suffering instead of both of these categories. If we only have one category, we're going to let people off the hook for things they actually need to own, to own up to in their lives. Or we're going to just heap and shame and pile on people who are already weary from suffering that they actually didn't do anything to cause themselves. All of this to say, though, there are times when we see purpose in our suffering. But the more prolonged it is, and the more that it's not actually the result of our own sin, the harder it is going to be for you and I to see the point of it. Even we who believe that suffering is sanctifying, who, who want that, who, who want to be shaped by God, we long to actually see some of the results of that. We long to see that actually go somewhere. Old Testament scholar named Michael Wilcox says it this way. He says, If my short life is to be taken up with the shaping of the vessel, then when is the finished article ever going to be put to use? You ever feel that way? If my life is going to be taken up by shaping the vessel, when do I actually get to use the finished product? Life feels like all process and no product. Life feels like even if this is sanctifying, it's too short to be consumed by perpetual suffering. And if you feel that today, when you feel that in a certain moment or moments of your life, you can say that to God. You can actually say that to God. That's what David is doing in Psalm 39. He is voicing his struggle, his confusion, his frustration directly to the source, to God himself. And this actually ties in very closely then with the second struggle that David speaks in this psalm. It's the struggle with God's attentiveness to our suffering. His attentiveness to our suffering. Look back again at those last two verses of the psalm. In verse 12, David says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Don't hold your peace at my tears. But then in the very next verse, what does he say? Look away from me that I may smile again. You hear the conflict in David's heart? In his soul, the wrestling, hear me, God, hear me, but look away from me. Let me ask you, church, when you suffer, does it feel like God cares too little or does it feel like God cares too much? Often, I think we would say that it feels like God cares too little, that we wish he were more attentive to us that he would actually rise up and come to our aid and do something about the suffering that we're experiencing. But people who suffer deeply and who suffer, suffer deeply in a prolonged way, they actually start to feel like God is too attentive. Like maybe God cares too much. See, as his image bearers and as those who follow him, we become the objects of God's special attention and care. And we love that when it's about his kindness and his compassion and his favor being upon us. But when the suffering is relentless, 
And when we start to see like David sees in Psalm 39 that it's God who is behind our suffering, we stop wanting God to care more and we start wanting him to care a whole lot less. And so instead of praying things like, God, please hear me. Please rise up. Don't hold your peace. We start to pray things like, God, get your eyes off me. Get your eyes off of me. Even if you have purpose in this, even if you are sanctifying me through it, it's someone else's turn to be in your crosshairs. It's someone else's turn to be the target of your special attention. Job, again, the the epitome of suffering in scripture, he twice tells God not to care more, but to care less. Job 7, what is man that you make so much of him? Sounds a lot like Psalm 8. Starts out the same way, where the psalmist is rejoicing in the, the care and the favor that God has. Well, who is man that you are mindful of him? Job says, what is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him, but get this, and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone? Why have you made me your mark? Or a couple chapters later, Job 14. And do you, God, open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Since man's days are determined and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. I can really only remember one prolonged season in my life where I was saying things like this to God. And it actually was in some of the earlier years of planting and pastoring this church. There was a long stretch where it felt like God just wouldn't leave me alone. That every day felt like it unearthed a new conflict or an overwhelming situation that I was just completely unequipped, ill-equipped to handle. Now, some of that was my fault. Some of that's my own sin and things I had to repent of and things I needed to own and take responsibility for, and some of it wasn't. And I remember thinking and praying in those days, God, I know I'm a sinful man. I know I've got a lot of things to grow in. I'm 100% confident you have a ton of ongoing shaping work to do in me, but would you just get off of me for 10 seconds? Would you just get off of me for 10 seconds? Would you let me come up for air? Would you let me enjoy a day where there's just not another day marked by conflict and burden and unknowns? Look away from me. Now, some of you have experienced this a whole lot more than I have. Multiple times over, in your life. And if that's you, I want you to see this morning the camaraderie you have with Job and with David and with faithful, faith-filled people of God throughout the generations. Your struggle to see the purpose of suffering, your struggle with God's attentiveness to your suffering, that is a painful and difficult and confusing struggle. But it's not a new struggle. It's not a new one. And it's actually exactly how Psalm 39 ends. Unresolved and conflicted. Sometimes silent. Sometimes speaking our struggles. Sometimes wanting God to care a whole lot more and hear us. And sometimes wanting God to care a whole lot less and look away. Psalm 39 does not tie it up in a nice little bow. It does not offer us answers so much as it invites us into the experience, as it invites you to be someone with David who is able to sing the song of the suffering. 
You see, Psalm 39 is in the Bible. It is in the very word of God because it is inviting you to bring your conflictedness, to bring your confusion, and actually to bring your suffering itself to the source, to God. And at the very center of this psalm, the focal point of the psalm, verse 7, that is the place that you are invited to come back to over and over again in the midst of your suffering. David says there, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Centuries later, there are some people who say almost exactly the same thing to Jesus. And in the midst of hearing hard words from him, and in the midst of their own difficult circumstances, some of them say to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He asked them if they want to go away, like others have left Jesus, and they say, Lord, where else will we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And this, whether it comes from the Gospel of John, like that statement, or whether it comes from Psalm 39, this is the bleak yet beautiful bedrock of authentic faith. That in the depth of our suffering, when things are not yet resolved, we have nowhere else to go but God. As confusing as that will be at times, as frustrating as it will be, there's also something incredibly comforting about that. Because this same God who offers us so few answers in our suffering, this same God who offers us nowhere else to go in our suffering, does offer us himself and has offered up himself in the person of Jesus, in Jesus' own suffering, has offered up himself for your life and for the life of the world. So friends, and especially those of you who are in the midst of prolonged suffering in your life right now, whatever that may be, for what do you wait? Your only hope is in him. And because he has offered himself to you in Jesus, because he continues to offer himself to you, bring your suffering to him. Truly, we have nowhere else to go. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we add our voices to your disciples who cried out to you in the Gospel of John. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so in moments when we can't see the purpose of it, in moments when we wish you would look away and be less concerned, I pray that we would remember that there is nowhere else for us to go. And that that bedrock of genuine faith would be enough to sustain us. That you would, as you have in Jesus, continue to offer yourself to us in the absence of answers, in the absence of other places to take our suffering, that you would continue to offer yourself to us. And thank you that we now get to come to this table, which is the picture of you offering yourself to us. It is the picture of your suffering. Help us to come this morning in the midst of our suffering and to receive the grace that you hold out to us. Sustain us again today. Show us the good that it really is that we have nowhere else to go. Let me pray this all Jesus in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.